so there's a it, it, it looks to me as though the impact of this particular event is going to be a little bit more long-lasting than perhaps other events like you know the whole 9-11 thing had very specific impacts as it relates to homeland homeland security and the wonderful world of tsa and getting through airports and stuff um the 2008 financial crisis got the banks at least to start behaving moderately responsibly although you have to argue whether that's really worked out but this is very different in the sense that it has had a very very sudden impact on people's lives um and has sent political institutions into chaos quite frankly and business into chaos and people into shock and, and 1.5 billion children of the world um, out of classroom. Yeah. I think that's kind of a shocking number. I mean, maybe uh, previous to this, if we look at all the all the countries of the world, there might have been a quarter of a million children that really were not attending school, that maybe mm -hmm. should have been attending school. But at this point, we're at 1.5 billion. So that's quite a shocking number, I think. Yeah. And, you know, there are a few people who are now starting to sort of talk about you know, what does this mean for, for for the world of tomorrow? And I mean, that, those are enormous questions that I, I, I wouldn't even dream to start trying to answer. But I do think it has impacts on uh, the business of work. Um, we've talked a lot of, over the years about the future of work. Uh, a guy called Jason Averbrook um, the other day he was talking about the now of work in the sense that whatever the future was, excuse me guys it's just disappeared it's now and we have to re completely rethink what we're doing in terms of people forget process and technology that will take care of itself anyway we've known that for years yeah but in terms of people what are we going to do with people how are we going to look after people um because we haven't done a very good job of that in my view i mean when i i said to to, to him the other day i said you know my time in america there were a few things that i learned and one of them was that Americans seem to me at least to be very, very poor on intimacy. They don't like to reveal much about themselves. And they certainly don't trust people in the way that um, we do in Spain and France, where I used to live, right? They don't have the social connections that we used to have in Spain and France, and which in some senses has, has accounted for what's happened in Spain and Italy, in the sense that older people sit around. I mean, just sit around and shoot the ship and drink wine and that's it you know that's what you do and you know that physical um proximity has probably been a significant contributing factor not something that would operate in the same way in the us now i mean i can draw similar parallels in the uk i mean we're you know we're famous for this stiff upper lip thing right um but but i saw that as a, being a very specific characteristic in trying to form relationships with many people over in the US, which were quite unsuccessful most of the time, to be honest. Um, and, and it seems to me that in having listened to what's being said, that that may not be true. That in fact, people do crave intimacy. They do crave wanting to feel as though they matter and valued and all the rest of it. 
but that the way in which business has set up employment, self-employment, however it manifests itself, is such that they've not been able to to have those things come forward. And maybe this thing changes that because employers realize that it isn't really a great idea to have a pissed off, unhealthy, frightened workforce because they aren't going to get much out of them, right? Um, that's only for starters, of course. And by the way, if I behave badly and you end up dead, that's probably even worse. Um, do you see where I'm going with this, right? And, and, and I... And, and I wonder whether this is some kind of a tipping point that will get business generally to rethink this and reframe how we deal with people in a fundamental way. What, what, what is, I mean, you talk a lot to people, Marilyn, what do you think? So it's interesting because I excuse was- me, that's a, Excuse my speech, by the way, it was a speech. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and I haven't prepared one. I actually was thinking about I was thinking about uh, including your experience into the way I'm viewing this in terms of internationalism. So I too have been someone who's lived abroad, lived lived in other cultures. I, I considered myself, and uh, I know this is computer terminology, but stateless at one point in my career. Uh, and that's, that's not entirely true, right? Uh, you're shaking your head. Um, statelessness for me meant that I had affinity for whatever place I was in. So it comes down to that, that empathy thing. And it's interesting too, you know, perhaps you and I aren't old enough to have lived through uh, another pandemic, but we certainly uh, might have had people who, um, who knew of people who, who did. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, grandfather and father, father uh, generations. But um, what I wanted to say about this internationalism, and it's interesting that you talked about qualities of, of behavior and response in a, in a community sense. Um, my background, if you might recall, is that I lived in a community in, in the Middle East for a good portion of my adult life, actually. You're a kibbutznik, right? Yeah, <laughs> for, for at least uh, over a decade. And during that period of time, the experience, and that's something that I can draw on or liken um, this situation to a little bit was that during the Gulf War, um, the country had to quickly educate its citizens to understand that they would need, that the front would be their home. And they'd need a safe room and a gas mask, which is kind of shocking. I mean, it's a little different than this because, but maybe, you know, same, same, but different. Uh, we at least had the, um, advanced warning of seeing this happen in another part of the world and maybe had a brief opportunity. And I think my, my message is, are you hearing them? I, I hope that's not disturbing our flow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm good. Okay, so, uh, so the idea of um, having, having experienced uh, a situation where we are suddenly we're suddenly thrust into a response and that response includes not only our work and our professional life but our families as well so right. 
again, sitting in a, in a safe room uh, with chemical uh, warfare fear in the background, having to deal with your work, um, which has suddenly been entirely disrupted, your children who are out of school, that's not an unfamiliar, unfortunately, situation uh, for me. So that was, was back in the 90s. And, and I'm thinking about how people respond and how people cope and how people deal. And as I said, same, same, but different. I mean, we had a little bit of advanced warning seeing what's happening in, in Wuhan and South Korea and other places in the world. So the question is how fast we mobilize and how quickly we draw on um, our ingenuity and creativity and resources to, to solve our immediate problems. And I, and I think that um, I'm actually pretty optimistic that this is not just an incredibly challenging, but also an opportunity. And when you talked about the future of work, uh, and I think about the future of learning, I think there might be an opportunity because I see parallels in both of these uh, places. Uh, I've, I have a number of um, family members far flung in the world. I have children uh, and, and school age grandchildren in, in Greece, uh, in various parts of the US. I have, have a child in Canada. And so I'm getting, I'm getting a, an opportunity to listen to them, to hear their, their experiences. That's at the family level. Um, and a professional level, just as this was beginning and ramping up in the United States, I happen to have been in a design thinking workshop with graduate students in Georgia. And I continue to engage with them a little bit and see how they're managing to learn and uh, conduct their studies in a, in a rather uh, new format. And what I'm seeing is that there's, there's a bit of an a problem or adjustment for those people providing services, whether they are business leaders who are managing their workforce or professors who are dealing with a new way of teaching their, their students in, uh, in, in the university or school children and their uh, peers and, and teachers. The idea of command and control it has entirely changed. And I, I, I'm speaking to teachers too in uh, my, my New Jersey community. I, I have a friend who's a biology teacher in middle school. She's a wonderful, wonderful instructor. She's a marvelous communicator. And what she loves is the proximity to her students. And she's totally overwhelmed. She absolutely doesn't want to teach in this kind of, uh, you know, technology-based remote uh, digital framework. And I'm, try I'm listening to her and I'm trying to understand how she can feel proximate to those, those students when she is physically removed from them. And I, and I think that, that um, all of us are, are facing this new reality. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's much different uh, in the Middle East or in the US or in Europe in that sense. Um, you know, you said something about your stiff up, up, upper lip. Um, and I was, I, I recalled that uh, years ago, you and I did um, some kind of engagement where we spoke about community building and the idea of ghost mapping and cholera uh, and that 
that London story, I don't know if you recall, uh, for epidemiology as being a having good outcomes of changing the paradigm so that the experts um, really were the the, the locals and not necessarily the scientists uh, who thought that cholera was airborne actually and, and, not, and not as it turned out to be waterborne. So this, this concept of um, having proximate knowledge, if, even if you aren't physically able to be in the same room with your, your students or, or your, uh, your, your workers or inversely, um, starting bottom up, having that walk the neighborhood type of expertise is I, is I think very, um, there's a lot of optimism in that. I, I don't think one person can solve these huge problems alone. I think the idea of community coming together to do that is inspiring. I don't know if you read, uh, I saw this yet last night, uh, there's a new movement in Canada called caremongering. It's the opposite of fear mongering. And it's the idea that community comes together, provides resources to itself in terms of tools, in terms of um, addresses, in terms of uh, available resources. And it's, it's a movement to combat the scaremongering that, you know, unfortunately uh, inundates us. Um, another thing that I saw that was very, uh, filled me with optimism was a few minutes before this call, um, Julien Deva, who now works for Google, uh, posted about Google's learning platform, which is tr trying to provide a platform for learners to learn more about distance education, to educate themselves. I think the scary thing is that for, for many people is that, you know, they feel that they have to have the tools and the environment to solve problems now. And I think we all of us could take a moment, take a deep breath, and realize that you know we're we're doing triage. We we have to figure out a way to to function that makes sense for us. A lot of the instructors are pushing back on on the uh, on the digital tools. They're they're overwhelmed. So finding the ways that work best. Why before we go on, Marilyn, I have to show you this because I don't know if you heard my phone beep. See that? That is the birth of a child. That's my latest grandson. Congratulations. Just li literally just arrived. <laughs> oh my goodness, and good timing. Um, I think before, well, yes. And see, that's the optimistic part of me. Um, diff difficult in this time. You know, that, again, my, uh, I, I gave birth in a gas mask during a scud attack. So I know what really? that feels like. Really? <laughs> to, my, to my fourth child, yes. <laughs> now that's something I bet many people didn't know and they're gonna find out about this <laughs> fairly shortly. That, uh, that, that, that's a pretty unique situation there. I, I love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> a scud attack. <laughs> Excuse me while I give birth. You just bomb somewhere else, will you? <laughs> Oh my goodness! Just back to this: why why are they resisting? Is it is it because they've suddenly become overwhelmed? They've not been prepared. They yeah, this sure. is something that was thrust upon them. This isn't something that uh, they 
were perfectly uh, prepared for. I mean, a lot of organizations, schools as well, have a lot of these tools. Uh, I've been doing a kind of uh, survey of the various tools that are out there, looking at them, trying to see if there's things that are simple and well defined. And I noticed that some of the school systems actually have IT support that immediately jumped in and made these things available to instructors that were perhaps less uh, used to working with them. And what I hear is, I don't want to learn another tool now. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, this, there, there's so much flying at me. You tell me to, that I need to do these things um, asynchronously. I'm not you know, really certain what that means. I'm not comfortable with video content. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this way of giving assignments. I, I'm seeing a lot of that. Uh, I mean, I'm actually even seeing students with that kind of pushback. Hey, you know, let's just do a synchronous uh, meetup. I know I'm going to have to polish and rehearse material that I'm recording. This is from adult students. And from the kids, I'm hearing, uh, you know, this is boring, the way our teachers are handling this. Um, how can we, I'd like to be able to partner more with other people. There's a loneliness for the students in, in that, that uh, non-proximate way, way of learning. But I think the, the general theme is overwhelm. Too many bells and whistles. I heard that, that yesterday from a professor. Don't want those bells and whistles right now. I just want to be able to be able to deliver the knowledge and have the connection with the students. And here I see opportunity because I think it was uh, maybe back in the 70s with Malcolm Knowles and his adult learning theories uh, who, who spoke about uh, um, this idea of having a guide on the side rather than a sage on stage. And that's why, why I relate it back to the enterprise as well too. People aren't really that familiar with this idea. You know, they know command and control. Uh, they know how to, um, they believe they know how to orchestrate or organize a certain type of organizational structure, but suddenly it's changed. And this idea of uh, no longer being the sage on stage, but the guide on the side is very, it's threatening too in a little bit of way. You know, I'm used to working as an individual, said one British, uh, <laughs> she's in America, but one British middle school uh, instructor that I spoke with. So it isn't just an American versus European or Asian or Middle Eastern problem, I think. It's interesting. I, I spoke with Vijay last week, I think you know, and he's very concerned about what happens for the generation of folk in his business how are they going to come forward right how are they going to be mentored how are they going to learn because the notion of apprenticeship has kind of disappeared and you kind of learn on the job and all that sort of stuff and all the problems that go with it um i would imagine that the, the problems that you're describing are simply going to be reflected in those environments very rapidly aren't they i would imagine so Absolutely. And in doing some thinking, and I would prefer not to do this thinking alone, and I'm testing out some of this thinking you know, real time with, with people in the classroom. I, I recall um, first experiments with using WebEx, uh, and now Zoom has it, and other formats have it as well, breakout rooms. And the idea 
of being able to change the context of a, a classroom. Again, it's a lot of it's a lot of focus on the technology. But if we remove the and become you know tech neutral in this, and remove the technologies from the from the equation for a moment, I think which what was more most helpful in guiding the presenter or the instructor or the person disseminating information that might not necessarily have been comfortable with those formats was having some kind of a producer on the side. You know, you might have participated in some of those mentor calls where there was somebody, me, for example, who was engaging with the participants in a chat session while a presentation was going on, was making sure that everybody was comfortable in the room that everybody's questions were being answered. I mean, this is very common uh, for some formats that we have such a person supporting the person that's presenting. And I started thinking about this role and I, you know, for lack of a better uh, name, I was calling it a class monitor or a care monitor or a producer, somebody who assists the main presenter or the main disseminator of information. The problem is, of course, you know, how do you scale that? How does each teacher have such a resource? How do we combine resources to give that kind of support? And I actually, again, started thinking about that grassroots-wise. So in every organization or system that I've worked in, there are always those people, it could be even students, that have an affinity for technology that have a have a high emotional intelligence have an affinity for people and are able to give that kind of resource or support to the people that they're working with how to scale that not entirely certain but maybe it really it has to be a grassroots bottom up type of thing are we ready for that I scale think that aside scale aside did you say or scale yeah 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 scale aside let's assume let's assume that we can in some way or other scale what you're envisage envisaging do you think that um that we are ready for that kind of thing i think that i think it's an that it's an opportunity for the empaths i think it's an opportunity for the caregivers if we're willing to recognize them uh I think that nobody designated me the, you know, assistant in, in these presentations or, or welcomer or greeter at, at the door, right? And so these are the type of roles that people fill because of their natural proclivities. I don't know if it's, you know, something that needs to be defined, but there has to be a willingness on the other side to accept that kind of help. And I think the desperation sometimes gives birth to that, right? So yeah, I think employers are going to have to recognize that people that they have in their organizations that have that kind of emotional intelligence are suddenly valuable assets. And yeah. I think they won't be able to help but uh, recognize that they need that kind of uh, care mongering and uh, care monitoring and help. So what about the future of community generally then, Marilyn? I mean, one of the reasons that I'm talking to you is because 
you'll hate me tell, saying this, but you are the godmother of the SAP community network, whether you like it or not. Everybody who knows you knows knows you in that in that way. And whenever there's a, a major problem, the, the question always comes up, what would Marilyn do? <laughs> so we're now in a we're now in a we're now in this new environment and what does it mean for community? Is this I think I think it's an enormous opportunity to reboot McDonald's. Massive opportunity to reboot. That's Was my look at I mean. No, I think that it's it's also a massive opportunity for equal op, uh, access. It's a it's a great opportunity for. Uh, again, I'm a little uh, loath to use these uh, bombastic words, but for a democratization of of systems, and I see that as an incredible education opportunity. I see that as a workplace opportunity. And, you know, we always discussed, and you, you and I have had opportunities to engage in grassroots projects, in, in bottom-up projects. And we know how to assemble our, our, our people who are like-minded. I think the trick now is, and, you, and you've done a great job at this, Dan, of bringing in the the elements that can make things happen. So they're the, the makers and the doers, and they're the thinkers and they're the creators. It's getting that that whole set of, of folks uh, assembled. Um, and sometimes it just falls into place. I, you know, I, was, I was thinking about the Esme project too, right? Um, oh, blimey, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, yeah. you know, a social experiment in, in social messaging. It was, it was. And it was before its time, but you know, oh, it's yeah. ironic that we brought that up now because now is the time. And I, I think that's the now is the time theme. How did you, you started speaking about that now, you know, it's not the future. Yeah, yeah it's, now it's, it's, it's the now work, right? And um, I, I, hear, I, hear you, I hear you very clearly here, Marilyn, but there's a problem with this. And at least from my perspective, and that is, if you if you wind the clock back to those days when the community really was thriving very well within within that company, when ESME was possible, when things like the Certification Five was possible, and other similar initiatives was possible, there was a very very different environment at that point in time, and. A number of those people have developed, they've moved on, which is understandable. People do move on in their lives and you have to respect that. But what, what, is, what I see as a problem, I haven't seen, or at least if, I, if they're around, I don't know where they are, the people who would follow on, okay? So, you know, people like yourself, perhaps myself in my own way, could mentor others, but where are they? Where, where are the people who are going to, come forward and create around this particular set of things that you're talking about. That's, that's my, my concern at the moment. I don't know, I don't know if you see the same or not, but you know, <clears throat> I, I can put it very simply. I, recently I met with um, Christian Klein, who's co-CEO of SAP, right? And he asked me a whole ton of questions about things that, um, you know, he said, well, what would you do here? What would you do there? Da, 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 da. And it's a quite a long list. And as he was going through through it, 
I, I had some answers, a few, but I said, oh, you need to talk to this person, that person. There was a whole bunch of people that I felt that he would benefit from talking to. None of them are people that I've met in the last five years. They're all people that I've known for the last 10, 15 years, because I haven't met people in the last five, 10 years who have demonstrated that same sense of community as those that I'm thinking about. Now, I'm not trying to be elitist in any way, shape or form. I'm, I really wish it wasn't that way, because I need to learn, right? And what, you only learn so much from your peers before you need fresh ideas coming in, right? And you need, you need new people, you need people that you've never met before and all the rest of it. I'm just not seeing it. Or at least maybe I've missed it. I, I don't know, but that, my concern is, is that there hasn't been enough of that to come forward in the last five, 10 years now. And that seems to be true elsewhere, I have to say. You know, I've seen leaders in, in other large communities and they've done absolutely amazing job, disappeared, but who came and replaced them, right? Where was, where was that new fresh blood? I don't know where they are. And even while this is a, a ph phenomenal opportunity, it, it would be such a shame if those new, newer faces, they've got to be around. I don't know where they are. They've got to be around. We're not allowed to flourish and come forward. That's my concern at the moment. I'm not completely, have I missed something? Have I just been stuck in a hole somewhere and just missed it all? Or what do you think? I, I'm thinking that there, again, opportunity. Uh, maybe it's it's approach to, I, I always seek out what I call reverse mentoring. So I'm always ah. looking to see how we can create those resources. Uh, my most recent experience with Doctors Without Borders was such a case, totally inspired by a young man who I was hired to train. I was hired to mentor, uh, to lead the logistics online community that Doctors Without Borders was creating for its logisticians in the field. Um, I digress for a moment, but for no, me, no, no, do, do talk about that because uh, uh, you know I don't, I don't, I don't know this story, and I'm sure others would love to hear it. So it's not a, it's not a corporate experience, but um, there's certainly a lot of parallels. Um, Doctors Without Borders at Medicine Sans Frontières, argue, arguably a well-respected um, and very productive system uh, of of humanitarian care delivery sure and it is a, it is divided into the doctors the caregivers that we all know about and the logisticians that support them right there's a lot of logistics in the field and there is a kind of command and control in a way because there are organizational structures around the world headquarters that are orchestrating the field um, operations on the ground. And when I was called in to help build this community of practice for logisticians to have some knowledge exchange, I suggested, and it was um, readily accepted, that in order to understand the workings of this organization, I need to be proximate. So I was sent to uh, Haiti and then Malawi, and it was incredibly inspiring when you, you talk about all the great places you, what is it <laughs> you need to be proximate yeah where are you gonna go 
He said, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And Malala, yeah, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> well, it wasn't like that. I had a lot of concerns. Um, the the oh, concerns sure. actually, actually weren't at all about, uh, about personal safety or, or cool places. It was more about being a distraction in places where people were really doing the work. And in fact, uh, in Haiti, uh, at that point in time, I didn't have a French speaking background, so I needed a translator. And that meant a filtering of information, you know, and interviewing. Um, since that time, I've, I've uh, gone on to Duolingo in the last two years. I can say that I have some reasonable understanding now uh, of, of French. You speak and French. I, Good. I don't, I don't say I speak. I say I listen. <laughs> Uh, but, um, but uh, and in Malawi, uh, they had they had people would, would converse with me in English. But what I wanted to say was, what was inspiring was to see the local people with incredible ingenuity and um, a lot of uh, a lot of passion uh, interact with the uh, with the non-local resources, or they call them the non-national resources, that were deployed to, to assist and aid and sometimes guide. And it was a very, I, I, I saw some very interesting interactions uh, that really made me understand that a, if you are truly able to listen to the people who have the local knowledge, you can make tremendous impact and, and uh, difference in, in the way an organization functions. Uh, so going back to this idea of mentorship, um, I saw people, I saw, I saw a tremendous passion for mentoring leadership, for being able to helicopter in, provide services, but the idea was to create a functioning organism when you left. Uh, and to leave it in the hands of the local local people, not to be absolutely imposing on them a set of ways of behaving, but rather taking from the the local knowledge and and building something that would be sustainable. And in the same way, um, going back to the reverse mentoring of the young man who is the community manager of this logistician online community. I learned a lot from him as well, although I think that uh, my, my role was to, to mentor. So he, he also um, took example and, and uh, went and was proximate. Um, I believe that he, he went to the Middle East, um, probably went to some places where as a, a former kibbutznik, I would not be welcome. Uh, but um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is we, we collaborated, he, he, he came back, we, we discussed some of these experiences, we tapped some of those local talents that we discovered or uncovered um, during our, our missions of, of interview, um, observe, uh, be proximate. And I, I, I believe that uh, when I left that consulting gig, I left um, at least the the, the germ of a, of a functioning um, and to me in, in inspiring concept of a community. The thing that kills it, the thing that squashes it is, is command and control. Um, and, and, and there's risk there, right? Because 
uh, even in an organization as wonderful as Doctors Without Borders. You know. So uh, I, I am optimistic. I think it's being mindful of the need to listen to, to the people, <laughs> really. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, there's no choice. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, I'm sure, does not have the, res the human resources to continue to support all of these crisis management uh, needs all over the world and has to create a situation, a, a change management. And I think that they're in the process of doing that and witnessing that is actually very inspiring. I think I might have told a story, and if I, and if I didn't, I'll share it um, because it's a wonderful one in Malawi of how I saw high-tech um, epidemiological uh, data mapping. And what it was, was this wonderful community leader uh, interviewing local residents and having them draw in the sand their maps of the uh, of their uh, churches, their, their schools, the places where they had supplies, um, their, their villages. He translated it into high-tech uh, paper, and then that became digital. And, and, then, and then I also met with some local uh, young people that were involved in GIS and were really striving to geomap things. Similar story in Haiti um, with, uh, the, with, with malaria education. Uh, what they did there was amazing. They went into neighborhoods, they enlisted gang members to go uh, door to door and start start bringing education to the people. They did that pictorially, they made murals on walls. So, I mean, we don't need digital tools to do all of these things entirely. Um, but it's it's having that trust in, in local people and in, in mentoring, in, in partnering, and in reverse mentoring and learning from those people as well. NGOs, at least in my experience, are just as if not more quote unquote political than corporations. And sometimes that can be, um, can almost be strangling mm -hmm. in, in terms of getting things done. Um, so if it can work in those organizations, I, I, I tend to think if it can work in those situations, then it can work anywhere, right? But what I think I've heard you say is that regardless of what you're doing, you have to be able to meet people where they're at. Yeah? The, the technology can follow without a shadow of doubt, but you know, talking about drawing in the sand, Maybe that's because they haven't got paper and pencil, right? And that's the way for them to be able to understand things. You know, um, going out to gang members and doing murals, well, you know, maybe that's the way that you need to talk to these people. So perhaps the thing that I'm taking from this more than anything is, if, if I meet people where they're at, I've probably got a reasonable chance of having some success. If I try and impose them on them, the way I think it should be done in my worldview, huh? not going to happen. And maybe that's maybe that has to be something of the blueprint of however we go forward with this in, in the future. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I I think that yeah, bingo. Um, I think that's been my learning even in these few brief weeks, uh, trying to imagine how I could best support you know, at a small scale, 
some of the instructors, my own grandchildren, for goodness sakes, you know, who are, who are learning, I, um, hearing how the, what their preferences are, how they work observing. And it does, it does take a little bit of time. The thing is where most of us are, who, who are doers or are fixers or are empaths are ready to jump in and, you know, and make it better um, and fix it. And I think that getting a sense of what people what people need and and also what people can tolerate right now is going to be uh, our challenge for those people who want to make things better. Okay. Okay. What's next for you then, Marilyn? Uh, probably a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it is. Or it's not wine o'clock yet over your way. I know that. <laughs> No, and it's no, it's not. Um, walking the beach, actually, and that maybe that relates to. Uh, luckily enough, uh, it's cold here, very, very cold. Yesterday it was it was freezing cold, and there and the beach was totally, totally empty. And it's as I said, just a couple of meters from my doorstep. And in walking the beach, bundled up, I observed um, the only other inhabitants that were on the, the beach, uh, and they were birds of all different sorts. And I was watching their different methods of feeding themselves. And it made me think a lot about different, you know, ways that people either cooperate, interact. So you had the, you had these, uh, I had an amazing experience. I saw these Northern gannets that are divers from a hundred, a uh, hundred feet, at least uh, down to about a hundred feet or maybe uh, more into the water straight dive to capture their food. But they don't, they work cooperatively. Uh, wherever you see those northern gannets, if you're fortunate enough to see them way out in the horizon, you'll also see schools of dolphin, whales, seals. They drive the fish up, the birds jump down. So there's those kind of uh, feeders, if you will. And on, on, the, on the shoreline, I saw the oyster catchers. And they're equipped with two different types of bills. They have these orange beaks that are able, they're able to pry oysters open, or they're also able to drill down into the sand, but they only have those two methods of operation. That's, that's it. They're, they're limited and they work in pairs. There's two of them squawking and, and hunting and, and feeding. Um, unlike them, there are the seagulls and they're kind of uh, opportunistic omnivores, you know, they, they're going to eat anything that they find on the, on the beach. They're going to scare other creatures away. They, they pretty work, they squawk a lot. They work solo. Um, and they were driving a whole flock, little tiny sandpipers, and they seem to work very, very well in huge groups, so running all over the place, um, very, very fast. They're, they're really entertaining to watch. And what does this all have to do with, uh, you know, thoughts about community? I was just thinking about all the different types of, of, of food gatherers there, they are, there are, and how in this natural uh, order, each has a very, very different way of, of functioning, of learning, of eating, of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of sustaining themselves. And um, it made me think that, yeah, they're, you know, they're all kinds of learners, they're all kinds of workers, and we're going to have to find a way of accommodating all those different styles of being. So maybe I'll go back out to the beach and start observing some more. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, 
Fantastic. I'm glad you're optimistic. We need people who are optimistic at this point in time, don't we? But I, I think we actually also need infrastructures and, and, and systems that are willing to support. As I said, I was really happy to see just, just a few minutes before the call that Google is providing both money and resources to learning platforms. If I have anything that I'd like to focus on right now, it's remote learning or distance learning. Um, while I was at SAP, uh, we translated our, our work from uh, classroom work to, to remote learning. And I was a part of that transition and it, it wasn't easy. Uh, but I'd like, to, I'd like to see how I can somehow support those kind of transitions and make those work in organizations that, that can scale. And okay. if it's reverse mentoring, so be it. I bet those organizations have incredible resources and I know, I know they do. Note to the audience, hire the lady. <laughs> Not about hiring, it's about cooperation and collaboration. All right, okay, okay, okay. Thank you very much indeed, Marilyn. That's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you too. And be well. <laughs>